religion is like a hammer. You can either build a home with it or you can destroy a home with it. It kind of depends on what your outlook is. So for me, my, my outlook was not really, I wanted to just you know commit violence and mindless violence. For some people, that is the case. They may have come from traumatic backgrounds and they've just come to a point where they just want to lash out to the rest of the world. For me, that wasn't the case for me. I think I was looking to apply myself in a way that could be perceived and would be welcomed as righteous violence. For me, anyway, it was not a question of, okay, I now I, you know, I feel that I'm, I'm legitimized and now I'm just going to go and commit the violence. There were always points of introspection. One of the defining conflicts of the 21st century has been that waged in the shadows between the seething legions of Islamist fanaticism and the intelligence services seeking to thwart them. It would be remarkable enough to speak to someone who has been on one side of this conflict. This week's guest has been on both. Indeed, after a fashion, both at once. Mubin Sheikh grew up in Toronto and was among the generation of young Western Muslims seduced by the notion of jihad. After the attacks on the United States of September 11, 2001 prompted some reflection on which side he should be on, he worked undercover for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He played a key role in bringing to justice the would-be terror cell known as the Toronto 18. Mubin Sheikh is now professor in the School of Public Safety at Seneca College and a counter-extremism specialist for the NGO Parents for Peace and the author of Undercover Jihadi. I'm Andrew Muller and I spoke to Mubin Sheikh on The Big Interview. Mubin Sheikh, welcome to The Big Interview. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I want to start pretty much what seems to me the start of your story as it has come to pan out, which is a, a, a trip you make as a young man to Pakistan in the mid-1990s. What was your reason for going at the time? Yeah. Well, you know, what precipitated that was, of course, you know, my genius decision to have this house party at my house while my parents were out of town something that I had learned hanging out with, you know, my friends from high school. And in that party, you know, I got caught. My uncle came in. Uh, my father had told, you know, his brother to check on the house while he was gone. My uncle burst through the door while the party was happening. And so, you know, a mixture of shame and guilt, you know, accusing me of having defiled the home, you know, desecrated the the, the family property, basically, because I had brought these kufar into the house. That's what basically prompted me to think to myself, you know what, the only way I'm going to salvage my reputation uh, with the family, with the community was to quote unquote, get religious. And so I grew up with this, you know, again, Indo-Pakistani background. So the religious group that was, I guess, prominent is still very prominent in that community was the Tablig Jamaat. And the Tablig Jamaat, they, you know, they are apolitical, okay? But I would say that they are, you know, a bit fundamentalist, meaning uh, very conservative and almost literalist sometimes when it comes to understanding uh, the scriptures. And so because of their apolitical nature, they were able to operate and are able to operate in many places of the world where otherwise 
political groups or other, you know, Muslim activist type groups are simply not permitted. And so in Pakistan, Pakistan and India are the two main centers of this organization, of this movement. And so one of the things they do is they offer this immersion experience, if you will. So you spend four months, you spend two months in India, you spend two months in Pakistan, and, you know, and then you're done. And so being sent to Pakistan, we were eventually sent to a city called Kuwaita, near the borders of Afghanistan. And that's where I would have this uh, chance encounter with the Taliban. This is obviously something else I wanted to ask about, which was the nature of the Taliban's appeal, because I think you met the Taliban in Quetta more or less around the same time that I met them in different circumstances in, in Jalalabad and Kabul. And inside Afghanistan, I could kind of see what it was that appealed to people about them. They did represent some kind of order and some kind of peace where for many years previously there had been none. They were a a slight improvement on the absolute horror which had uh, gone before them in some respects. But for a, a young man from a peaceful, secure, affable and, and, and wealthy country like Canada, what did you see in them? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is uh, the same thing that I think young Muslim kids or even adults saw, whether they were in Canada or America or Britain. Uh, it was this idea of what we thought they represented, all right? And that was this pristine, austere, albeit austere, but pristine interpretation of the religion, free of all weaknesses and blemishes and all of the stuff that we came to despise the West for. You know, even the rulers in who were there in Afghanistan, I mean, it's true, they were very corrupt, uh, you know, you had drug dealing warlords. Now, of course, you have drug dealing Taliban. Uh, the idea was that they represented this perfect Islamic practice. And and that's what enamored enamored me towards them. And that's what gave me this this idea that they represented basically this austere, perfect practice of Islam as, you know, the the very companions of the prophet, alayhi salam, did. You know, so there was this very uh, fantastical, utopian understanding of who they were. And for you personally, when you got interested in jihad, uh, how deeply invested did you get in it? Did you, for example, at around that time, consider going to Chechnya or Bosnia, as a lot of similarly inclined young men from all over the world did? I, I did think about going to other places, places of conflict you know, by 1996. So in 95, when I had met them with the Taliban, I became, you know, I kind of started to subscribe to this idea that, yes, you know, jihad against the kuffar is the way to go. And then we started to look for these places where this these fights were happening. And Chechnya was the first place that came on the list. Uh, but then that's because, of course, in 1995, 96, you know, the Russians... Uh, the Russian regime uh, attacked, basically invaded Grozny and Chechnya and, and were fighting them and so developed this narrative out of there that here was a perfect example of fighting the jihad against the, the Russian kuffar who were oppressing the Muslims of Chechnya. I did think about going possibly to fight in Chechnya, um, but 
Thankfully, I was uh, talked out of it by uh, an imam, actually, an imam that was pretty close to me who said to me, look, you, you don't know the language. You don't know the lay of the land. You know, leave it to the professionals. You know, you just you just keep going to school and you stay home. So I guess it didn't take much, but I, I think it was because it was very fantastical and very aspirational. But this idea that I needed to do something is something that animates so many young Muslims and had animated so many young Muslims, especially in the ISIS years, right? Uh, motivating people to go to join ISIS. This is exactly what, what they said, right? That we wanted to, quote unquote, do something. And, and certainly even the ISIS recruitment uh, was was the same, that what are you doing? Here are the grievances. Look at all the bad things that are happening. What are you doing about it? That, I think, prompts one of the, the key questions that attends people's participation in movements like the Taliban or Islamic State. And this is definitely not just confined uh, to Islamist terror movement. It, it applies to pretty much any militant organization. Are people committing violence for a reason that they think justifies the violence? Or are they looking for an excuse to justify the violence that they actually want to commit? And maybe you at some point were not actually inclined towards committing violence and were therefore kind of hoping to be talked out of going to Chechnya or Bosnia or anywhere similar. Yeah, that, that's an important distinction to make. I think, you know, people, it's like I, I try to sometimes explain, you know, when people try to blame religion, I just say, look, you know, religion is like a hammer. You can either build a home with it or you can destroy a home with it. It kind of depends on what your outlook is. So for me, my, my outlook was not really, I wanted to just, you know, commit violence and mindless violence. For some people, that is the case. They may have come from traumatic backgrounds and they've just come to a point where they just want to lash out to the rest of the world. For me, that wasn't the case for me. Um, I think I was looking to apply myself in a way that could be perceived and would be welcomed as righteous violence. Right. And so there were many, there were caveats. There was, for me anyway, it was not a question of, okay, I now, I, you know, I feel that I'm, I'm legitimized and now I'm just going to go and commit the violence. There were always points of introspection. It's like, well, I can't do this here. I can't do that over there. So when I was here in Canada, I wasn't thinking, you know, I did have a thought about, you know, a, possibly certain places being attacked, but not necessarily me doing the attack. Although there was a very fantastical, you know, idea that I had once. I, I would take the bus, the public transport, passing by a Jewish synagogue, Beth Shalom. And I would think to myself, you know, if only somebody would blow this place up. Now, the synagogue was right next to a police station. So, that, you know, the deterrence effect was quite high. But the fact that I even thought about that happening to this place, you know, just in my own city. But that's as close as I came to imagining violence being done. It wasn't even I'm going to do it. It was just wouldn't it be nice if. It's obviously an incredibly bleak thought, and it's obviously a mindset you've moved a long way past, which is one of the reasons we're talking today. But if you think back to yourself at that time and thinking about that specific scenario, what good did you think it would do? Why did you think it would be a good thing to happen if somebody else did it? 
Well, simply because by that time I had come to be so indoctrinated to hate Jewish people. That's that's really what it came down to. And the synagogue was a symbol, of course, of Jewish presence and Jewish influence, you know, and that couldn't be. It's interesting because, uh, of course, many years later, the rabbi of the synagogue actually invited me to come and speak and address uh, their congregation. And I told them the story. I pointed right to the door and I said, you know, the bus passes by. How many buses pass by this place? And none of you are any wiser as to what's happening, what people are thinking, so on and so forth. So I explained to them that this was this is where I had come. This is where you know, I had been so indoctrinated by this time that this is the kind of things that were on my mind. You've spoken before about how the events of September 11th, 2001 were something of an epiphany for you. But leading up to that point, it wasn't, of course, the first high-profile Islamist attack or even the first high-profile Al-Qaeda attack. There were things like the massacre at Luxor in 1997, the bombings of U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya in 1998, the Christmas Eve bombings across Indonesia in 2000. How did you rationalise those to yourself? at the time? I guess it's a it's an extension of the previous question. Why were you able to convince yourself that these were, if not actually good, then at least justifiable? Yeah, only some of those events was I even aware of, really. Remember, it is, you know, pre-social media. I mean, it's unless you're listening to the radio and TV, you're not going to know about it, right? Really, there were some discussions, certainly the, the bombings in Kenya, and Tanzania, those were justified because, you know, they were symbols of uh, the West, right? They were places of the West. The West was using these embassies to undermine the, the Muslim societies and, and so on and so forth. You know, Islamically, now that I know, of course, the idea of you cannot target basically embassy people who are like uh, diplomats uh, because they represent, you know, intermediaries. So they they are basically off limits, right? But I hadn't come to that point. I just thought to myself, well, you know, they're they're kufar, they're kufar in Muslim countries, and they're they're using these places to destabilize Muslim countries, so they're legitimate targets. And and th- this is the kind of really vague. It allows a person to sidestep the normal moral inhibitions that would, of course, prevent them from doing those sorts of things. So it just became, well, they're kufar, so it doesn't matter. It's okay. And that was the lazy excuse that we used. And that's where I guess we get into that diffusion between reason on the one hand versus excuse on the other. But there's this interesting period, uh, I think, if I've got the timeline right, after September 11th, where you spend some time in Syria and appear to begin a process of, I guess you could call it, self-de-radicalization. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, I um, when the 9-11 attacks happened, of course, as the day went on and the gravity of the events really started to set in, I'll just give just a little bit of explanation because I, for me, it was very, very influential. I still, you know, I started off with this, ah, oh, they're kufar, blah, blah, blah. And then I heard on the radio as I'm driving to work that one plane hit the building. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, I actually thought, Allahu Akbar. You know, that uh, something bad happened to the U.S. And the U.S. is bad. So something bad happens to the U.S. That's good. And as I came upstairs uh, to the workplace, uh, I could see people were upset. I could, see, you know, overhear the conversations. You know, one one lady said, uh, you know, uh, we should just bomb them back to the Stone Ages. 
And then another male colleague uh, responded, well, the bombings are the, the reason why they did this to begin with. So it was this conversation that was happening, even in the workplace. And now, of course, I looked, I was the only overt Muslim looking employee who was there, like full beard, black turban, long robes. And people didn't know what to make of me anymore. Um, and so I went home during lunch. My wife was watching the television. She even said to me, and I, it was kind of like a half joke. I don't it, it, She said to me, she goes, are you sure you don't have anything to do with this? Because people were calling the house. They were phoning her saying, where's Mubin? Where's Mubin? What are his views on this? What does he think? And because they they had realized how far how radicalized I had become. And they thought this guy must be supportive of this. Right. And so they were trying to remind me that Mubin, this is, you know, this is not what we believe. The Muslims were telling me, you know, Mubin, this is not Islam. This is not, not what we believe. And the non-Muslim friends were calling me saying, Mubin, is this your religion? Is this what you believe now? So it was a really, you know, a very intense day, of course. And so in the end, at the end of that day, I, I was with the quote unquote bad friends. You know, they were just jubilant that this attack had happened. And I remember my friend saying to him, uh, you know, one of the, the mouthpieces there, you know, brother, like I understand jihad, but you know, what is this? Like flying planes into buildings? Like I must have missed that in the Quran or wherever. So uh, he just said, well, they're all kufar anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right. That was the that was the line that he used. And we, we kind of both looked at each other, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my friend and I, and we were like, I was not convinced. And that's when I thought to myself, you know what? I don't know my religion. I haven't studied Arabic. I haven't studied Islamic studies. I don't know. And so that's when I decided I needed to go and study. And that's how I would end up in Syria. It was a short story here. There was a, some construction going on at the, the masjid. There were two workers. They were from Syria. They heard that I wanted to go and study. So they offered me their place. He said, basically, hey, if, if you're going to study, why don't you go live there? My family, my sister's family is there. They'll take care of you. And so I ended up in Syria. I spent two years there studying uh, Arabic and Islamic studies, uh, actually teaching English as a foreign language and also doing a degree by distance education in religious studies. And uh, yeah, I went through a period of de-radicalization, a natural, you know, de-radicalization where I, the sheikh taught us that these ideas that you have are completely un-Islamic and I'm going to show you how and why. Can that process, though, do you think, be applied to pretty much anybody? I, I've often wondered if there is really a way that you can radicalise somebody who, at some level, does not want to be radicalised. Does the same thing work in the other direction? Can you de-radicalise somebody who, at some level, does not actually want to be de-radicalised? That's a very good question. I mean, you know the saying, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make a drink. And that's, that's what applies here, right? Especially with de-radicalization, if the person is not willing, you really, you cannot force it. 
I mean, there may be some coercive element that you can attach to it. And that occurs when a person is in custody. So it does create a situation for them where they realize, huh, it's probably in my best interest to, you know, start thinking about this stuff or at least considering that maybe uh, I am, you know, radicalized and, and I do need to rethink uh, the decisions that I took that got me here. So I, I call this a, a uh, it's like a, a synthetic environment, right, of de-radicalization. But again, it's tricky because you don't know how do you know who's just doing it to get a, a lighter sentence or to get off uh, their charges or who's doing it, you know, for a legitimate reason. So that's, you know, that's something that we, we can deal with. Practitioners who work in this space kind of have a an idea how to deal with that. But generally speaking, no, you cannot. If somebody does not want to, you cannot force them. So what you need to do is create around them the conditions for them to start thinking that, hey, wait a second, I think I do need to rethink, you know, what I've been doing all this time because look where I am now. And if you think that this is where, you know, like, oh, it's God's plan, it's God's plan. It's like, well, you know, it's like you're running in the middle of the street and you get hit by a car. Are you going to say it was God's plan? No, you you ran into the street and got hit by the car. It's your fault. It's just very hard to get anybody ever to admit that they were wrong about anything, I guess. That's that's one of the, the fundamentals of the human condition. It is. Absolutely, it is. You return to Canada uh, after Syria and you, and you begin working for the, the Canadian Intelligence Services and later the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Did you feel like you had some sort of debt that you had to repay? Yes, yes, I did. I absolutely knew that uh, it, it occurred to me while I was studying that, you know, for easily five years, I was indoctrinating other young people. I was spreading, you know, hateful ideology. I was targeting, you know, communities, uh, Jewish community in particular. And this is a big deal even today. I'm, I mean, certainly in the UK, you you lot are all aware of, um, you know, anti-Semitism that comes from uh, Arab and Muslim communities. Uh, of course, not to say that there isn't, you know, anti-Muslim sentiment coming from uh, Jewish communities as well. But for me, that was the environment that I was, you know, working in, so to speak. So. I came to realize that, wow, like, how do I even begin to repent for those sorts of activities? So, uh, you know, secretly within myself, I resolved that I was going to switch sides, that I was going to try to make right. And and this is one of the reasons why I went the undercover route is because nobody was going to know publicly that I had this change of heart. Even the people that knew me here before I left pre-9-11, after I went to Syria, they thought... I was escalating. They thought I was going there to, you know, try to uh, involve myself in some of the conflicts, not realizing that I had this change of heart. So I, I resolved to me and my Lord that I would I would walk a different path. And um, alhamdulillah, I'm still walking that path. Most famously, of course, you're, you're involved in, in prosecuting and imprisoning quite a lot of the group that became known as the Toronto 18. But during the period that you were undercover working on that, did you ever get suspicious that they were suspicious of you? Not really. My uh, credentials were impeccable. They, I mean, the guy said it himself, you know, he said, uh, hey, I, I did a credit check and he made the air quotes um, sign. He says, oh, we did a credit check on you and uh, and you passed. You're OK. And it was him basically confirming that they were possibly suspicious of me. They were asking other people about me. 
And of course, everyone they asked, they those people knew who I was. And so, you know, it was very, uh, very easy to get into those circles. You've seen these people up a lot closer than most and have therefore seen up close what must be another problem for Western intelligence agencies and police forces trying to deal with homegrown Islamist terrorism in particular. And I I know there's been a few examples of this in the United Kingdom and in Australia, which is how do you tell the difference between committed potential terrorists, people who might do genuine hideous damage to civilians and to property, and to people who are just to some level fantasists, because this must be a realm uh, that attracts blowhards, bullshitters, and and obvious lunatics? That's a very good question. You know, I remember I was on a panel once with in the US, but there was actually uh, MI5 uh, representatives uh, at this conference. And he, he came up with this or he presented this idea or spoke of this concept of spontaneous violent offenders. And the idea was that you have, you know, you have 10 people who show all the signs of they're ready to commit an attack or they're supportive of committing an attack. And yet of that 10, only two will act out. Which two are going to act out? You really don't know. You have to watch all 10. Now, there are certain indicators, and I'll share only uh, just a couple of them, really. I, you know, I don't want to give away everything. There are some indicators, right, for a person to take that next step. You know, the biggest one, I think, and this is important for the public to to hear because the public is a big factor in how these plots have been interdicted is uh, precursor materials and collecting materials for either explosive devices or for mass casualty attack. Uh, and that, that's the biggest uh, you know, indicator. And there have been a number of high profile cases in the UK where plots were, were interdicted actually because you know some idiot went in ordering you know, an exorbitant amount of uh, hydrogen peroxide and then, of course, you know, it's like, hmm, you don't really look like the, you know, I'm going to style my hair type of guy, right? And, and, and you don't style your beard, so that's probably not what it's for either. So buying, in, like obtaining or seeking to obtain materials for, you know, explosive devices or whatever. And the other big one is uh, conducting surveillance at, at targets uh, that you're, you're going to strike. Uh, and so this, again, comes down to really security uh, operators who are, you know, either operating CCTV cameras or whether you're a, a security guard at a place. These are the sorts of things that you look for. So those are two strong indicators that a person is going to to move into violence. But keep in mind that some of, sometimes some of these people, they keep quiet. They keep their mouth shut and they're not blowhards online and they're not saying anything. And they appear, they won't even have a beard. They won't, they will not appear hyper-religious at all. And those are the really committed, dangerous actors because they're quiet, they keep their head down, and they just, they're just they just driven towards that one objective. Do you think the fantasists and the militants are attracted to jihad by the same thing? I mean, you counselled for quite a period, I believe, uh, Sheroz Chowdhury, who was the, the central figure of the New York Times now discredited podcast Caliphate. God, what a, what a story that guy was. Because he was that fantasist bullshitter you know, who was online consuming all this ISIS material and then imagining that he was the main character, you know, in a hero story of his own making uh, in his mind, right? So, but uh, it, what do you do, right? When when people are, 
you know, when they're thinking about this sort of stuff, you know, parents are going to see these signs, friends are going to see these signs, maybe employers, fellow schoolmates, you know, there are things that people can, you know, look at uh, to sift through the, the bullshit, so to speak. When you think back to the most recent high-profile flaring up of Islamist uh, extremism, which was that associated with Islamic State, did that seem to you like the same kind of thing that had attracted you 20 or 30 years earlier? Or did this feel like something completely different, an, an, an evolution of some sort in militant Islamism? I don't think so. I think the underlying you know, factors are the same. Uh, especially, again, from the Islamic perspective, the, you know, the Islamic sources uh, talk about the Khawarij. The Khawarij are an early sect or were an early sect of zealot Muslims who emerged, um, you know, who who fought even uh, the fourth caliph of Islam, Ali. You know, may Allah be pleased with him. And uh, they eventually murdered the caliph, right? These, these people are such psychopaths Okay, that this is what they were. The prophet, peace be upon him, described them. They would be hyper-religious. They would quote the Quran, although the, it would not pass their throat. They would kill people, you know, uh, like mass killing of people. So the Khawarij were, have already been identified in Islamic sources as being these hyper-religious zealots uh, who, who had left this, who had left the religion. They were considered to be disbelievers now by this point. Um, you know, the, there are so many things against yeah, a lot of people don't, you know, because a lot of people think, you know, how Islam hates non-Muslims and non-believers and speaks about them in all these disparaging ways. But in fact, what the Islamic sources say about the Khawarij has not been said about any other group. OK, not even the polytheists who are the main antagonists, you know, in the early Islamic story. So the Khawarij have appeared again and again throughout time. And what we are seeing today is just the modern manifestation of the Khawarij. Al-Qaeda was, they are the beginnings of it, but ISIS really came and put, you know, put the cherry on top, so to speak, and just took it to a whole other level. So, so those aspects are the same. You know, the use of religious scriptures, poisoning the minds of young Muslims, encouraging them to leave their families in secret and join them in their lands. Can you believe that Ibn Kathir, May Allah be pleased with him, is writing in the 1200s about the Khawarij who would do this. And here we are today in 2023, and we can talk about the kids of Muslims who were encouraged to leave their families in secret, and now they're over there wanting to come back, right? Just a final thought then, and it's a thought prompted by what you've just been saying. In the process of de-radicalizing and, and when you've been counselling Muslim militants, how much of the road back from where they've got to can be paved by their faith? You've obviously had you know, quite a journey uh, within Islam, and forgive me if I'm sounding hideously ignorant of it because I'm, I'm not a Muslim myself, but there's clearly different interpretations of Islam as there are of all faiths, is a lot of the de-radicalization process as you've undertaken it rooted in that faith? Is it trying to say, look, there's another way of reading these texts? Yeah, uh, you know, faith interpretation is a big, big part of it. I mean, but you have to meet people also where they're at. I mean, sometimes the person may have a very superficial understanding of the religion and they need it to be corrected. Sometimes uh, the ideology, religious ideology, is just a cover. 
And there are other underlying issues that have nothing to do with religion and religious interpretation. There could be familial issues. There could be trauma in the person's background. And they're hurting so much that they just use this militant ideology as a band-aid and as a way to kind of inoculate them and protect them from the world, you know, going forward. So there are many different aspects of it. So sometimes, and I learned this, I learned it while, you know, I was doing more of this. So I do work with an organization called Parents for Peace. It's a U.S.-based organization where I do a lot of the direct interventions with people who are either the FBI has come to visit them in their home, or in some cases, lawyers have reached out to us because their client got arrested. So I've seen it, you know, across the spectrum, those who have this religious interpretation and they need for it to be corrected. But sometimes I realize that it's just these people don't have friends and they they just engage in these conversations over ideology because it's something for them to do. And it allows other people to engage with them and it creates this social network that they can then, you know, have a place in. So there are many different ways that this pans out. And and sometimes it has to do with religious interpretations and other times it's just they need to make their relationships with their parents whole again, maybe with their siblings and, and so on. So it could start like that, but sometimes it ends in a completely you know opposite direction. Mubin Sheikh, thank you for joining us. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Emily Sands. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.